Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to do a discussion all about intubation. We've had a lot of feedback regarding doing an episode on the steps to intubation. What does that look like? And so for those of you that have been either in the OR for a while, have been doing a lot of cases, if you're a CRNA, if you're a student close to graduation, this will probably be, for the most part, old news. Um, maybe there's a couple of things in here that um, will kind of refresh in your brain as you move forward to any type of boards that you have coming up. Um, but for those of you that are moving into maybe starting clinical soon, or if you're looking at going to anesthesia school, we want to go through from the very beginning, what does it take to intubate a patient? And we're going to start with a pre-op assessment that what are we looking for when we see a patient before we put them to sleep? And then once we get in the operating room, what different techniques or interventions are we going to do to maximize our chances of successfully getting an endotracheal tube in the trachea? And then the actual steps to placing that endotracheal tube inside the trachea. And so we kind of want to walk through everything from the beginning. When it comes to being a CRNA, one of the hallmark traits I feel like everybody talks about is the idea of being able to intubate a patient. It's it's like the hallmark trait of what encompasses uh, a CRNA. And intubating a patient, like I kind of alluded to, is so much more than just simply putting a hollow tube down inside of a patient's throat. It, it really starts all the way back from that preoperative assessment, all the way up to getting the patient in the room, getting them in the right position, inducing the anesthesia on that patient and getting them asleep to the point that you can put uh, an intracheal tube through their airway. How do you take over their airway? You have to determine what is the best equipment that's going to be needed to successfully intubate a patient. There's really so much that goes into this process that that goes above and beyond just simply putting a tube between somebody's vocal cords. And that's really what we want to talk about today is, is everything that encompasses the art of intubating a patient. Right. And like Cole mentioned, it seems like you, you know, before you're a CRNA, before you're in school, intubating is like the best thing. Can't wait to be able to. Because it really is, um, you know, so much more than than just the actual act of intubating. And then you start to realize too that the profession and um, you know the 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 job task that was more than just intubating it becomes honestly like the the smallest part of your day or something that you rarely um, you know really even think about. But I remember how excited I was before I ever intubated, and then uh, you know when you intubate the first time. Uh, it is a big deal. And you should mention that it's always the potential for it to be a very critical uh, situation. Uh, if you can't gain an airway, it becomes a very critical situation very fast. And so while you seem to move past the skill as being just kind of like the first thing that you'll learn to do as you start your training, um, it is something that you need to be an expert uh, in doing. And it's important that we just you know take some time to go over some techniques and some um, different strategies here. Uh, I think it's it's important. I think the first thing that we should mention, Cole mentioned that it is more than just the actual act of intubating. And it's so true that the, it starts with your assessment of the patient. So the first thing that we'll look at is what's called the Malin potty score. This will look at the oral pharynx and we'll assess for tongue. And we're looking at this relative to the oral pharynx. 
This is important because the bigger the tongue is, the less room that we'll have to visualize the vocal cords. So to do this, you're going to have the patient sitting upright. You're going to have them extend their neck, open their mouth, stick out their tongue. They're not going to be phonating. I think oftentimes you think of every time you stick out your tongue, you have to say, ah, we don't want them to do this. Um, that's going to change our assessment. Um, and then you're going to examine them at eye level. So oftentimes, you know, when you go in and pre-op and you're doing this, you're going to have to kind of get down, get a good view. Um, it's not going to be as helpful if you have them just, you know, looking up at you, get down at eye level and uh, have them open their mouth, stick out their tongue and take a look here. What we're looking for is, uh, you know, several things. We're going to grade this from one to four. Grade one is going to be the best view. So that's where we can see the tonsillar pillars, the uvula, the soft and hard palate. Moving down, each grade gets less visualization as we move forward. So if you get a uh, class two, then you can't see the tonsillar pillars. Class three, you can't see the pillars or the uvula. Class four, you can't see the pillars or the uvula or the soft palate. An easy way to remember this is the mnemonic PUSH. So think about PUSH is going to be a class one. So the P stands for the pillars, U, uvula, S is soft palate, H is hard palate. And then you're just going to lose a letter for each grade that you go down. So class two, you're going to lose the pillars. So you're just going to have the uvula, soft palate, and hard palate, so forth as you move down uh, the, the grading system. And again, this is going to be very important when we're looking at the patient. This is like the, the first thing that you'll do when you're assessing the airways, check the malampiety score. Like I said, this is going to assess um, for that size of the tongue. And we'll get into why this is important, but this is going to play a huge part in how easy it's going to be in order to, to gain your view and to be successful in your intubation. The next thing that we'll look at is the submandibular space. And this is important because when we are moving the soft tissue out of the way, we need somewhere for it to go. So this is where uh, basically we're going to be moving that tissue out of the way so that you can get a good clear view to the vocal cords and have an easy intubation. So things that may limit this submandibular space, think about uh, any tumors that would be there or masses in the neck, radiation, scarring in the neck. This is a very big one if they've got um, you know, scarring there on the neck that we have difficulty moving that soft tissue out of the way. Uh, could also be from burns or some congenital defects. Uh, previous neck surgeries, those are all things that you want to pay attention to. It might seem like a very benign thing when you hear, oh yeah, I had, you know, this surgery, um, you know, 40 years ago and you want to move right past that. And then you start to think, oh, you know, maybe that's going to affect the ability to move soft tissue out of the way and get a good view. So something to just keep in mind there. Another thing that we will assess for is what's called the upper lip bite test. And uh, I'm thankful that they named this um, very adequately. You can imagine what we're going to do here. Upper lip bite test is going to assess the ability to move the mandible. So this is going to identify if they're going to really be able to have mobility there of the lower jaw. The reason we're trying to do this again, when we are trying to gain access, there's several things that we're trying to align. We'll talk about this later, your accesses when you're trying to get a good view. But some of the things that are also going to help is the ability for them to open their mouth, to be able to uh, you know, open very wide, to have areas for that soft tissue to move out of the way. And then secondly, 
when you're looking at that soft tissue, you know, how is that in relation to the rest of their mouth? So we're looking at the mouth potty there. We're looking at their uh, submandibular space. And then here we're looking at their upper lip bite test to see the mobility there of the mandible. So class one of this upper lip bite test is going to be where their lower incisors are going to be able to bite above the vermilion border of the upper lip. So think about this. You're probably, you know, driving in your car and, and doing this. I can see you right now, but take that lower part, try to get those incisors and bite above your lip on your upper lip. If you're able to do that, that's a class one. That's what we're looking for. That's good uh, mobility. Class two, you can't reach that border. And class three, you can't even bite your upper lip with the lower incisors. So I know it's a little bit boring to run through all of these pre-op assessments, but this honestly is, is a very important step to preparing to intubate a patient because you need to know how difficult of a suspected airway is this patient going to be? Because the more difficult they are, then you may be putting a patient to sleep, giving them a neuromuscular blocking agent. So AKA creating a, a paralysis type state where they're not going to be able to breathe on their own. And if they're going to be too difficult of an airway to simply uh, do a direct laryngoscopy, which is where you use your own blade to look into the mouth and with your own eyes, see the vocal cords. If that's not going to be a very high probability based on their airway assessment, you want to know that ahead of time. You don't want to run into a situation where the patient's going to be desatting and you're unable to obtain an adequate airway because you didn't have the right equipment in the room. So I know the first steps here may seem a little bit boring to run through some of these, but it really is an important thing. Um, just two or three more things to talk about with this is an incisor gap is a, another thing that we look at. And so the larger the patient can open their mouth, the more likely that you're going to be able to align your view to see the vocal cords. And so you want about a two to three finger breaths between the incisors. Um, obviously, I'm not sitting there each morning that I go in to do a pre-op assessment and saying open wide and sticking my fingers in the patient's mouth. I mean, that's just not something you do. But at the same time, when I tell them to open their mouth wide for me, and I'm looking back and looking to see if I can see the tonsillar pillars, the uvula, et cetera, I want to also see how wide they're able to separate their upper and lower teeth for this reason. Another thing is their alanto-occipital joint mobility. So this is the ability to extend their neck back into what we call a sniffing position. So you want to see if the patient can extend their neck and lift their chin up towards the ceiling. So I basically, when I go in to, to assess a patient, I'll have them open their mouth wide, I'll take a look inside their mouth, and then I'll see if they have enough mobility on their neck. I want to see if they can lift their chin up to the ceiling and basically look behind them. And you want them to be able to do that with, with pretty good mobility, things that would impair the ability of the patient to extend their neck in that position would be rheumatoid arthritis, Down syndrome, diabetes, previous trauma. Maybe they've had a surgical fixation already. If you've had a patient that comes in and they have already had a procedure where their neck has been fused, the vertebrae in their neck, then they're not going to be able to uh, extend their neck back in that position. And plus, even if they can on their own, you don't want to get the patient to sleep and then manually be moving their head in that position um, to get yourself a better view. And so this is something that you definitely want to have different equipment. Uh, for example, we'll get there shortly, but a glide scope in the room for these kind of patients. 
Another thing that we look at is their palate. So how highly arched or narrow their palate is, is often a sign of difficult intubation. So you don't want an overly high arched or narrow palate. And then the last thing would be their neck anatomy. So a very short, thick neck is something that we don't want to see. We want a patient to have a very long, mobile neck, skinny neck. Um, we want them to be able to have full neck mobility and be able to touch their chin down to their chest. And then, like I said, extend that neck backwards as well. So as a whole, these are things that we're doing while we go and assess the patient. And, and like I said, I'm not going through each of these steps one by one. I'm kind of doing this all at once. As I'm assessing the patient, as I'm talking to them, asking them pre-op questions, et cetera, and you're gathering an overall sense of how difficult you think the patient's going to be to intubate. So a risk then, what are some risk factors after we went through all this for a difficult intubation? <clears throat> Things that are going to be um, registering as red flags for you are going to be if the patient has either A, a small mouth, B, a short, thick neck, um, C, a malampati of about a three or a four. Um, D, if they have an overbite, um, E, if they have long incisors or a decreased cervical mobility, uh, F would be a high arched palate as well. So, and, and really it's not necessarily if you have one of those things, you're going to be automatically at a risk of a difficult intubation. Um, you're looking for a, a multifactorial thing of all these put together. And so you're really judging what is your overall estimate as to how difficult this patient is going to be to intubate. And the more difficult they are to, that you expect them to be to intubate, you're going to go up in increasing equipment that you would use. So our, our most simplest form, as we're going to get through here in a second, is doing a direct laryngoscopy, which is where we take uh, a handle and a blade. And once the patient's asleep, you put it in their mouth and move their tongue out of the way. And you try to directly visualize the vocal cords with your own eyes and then put the endotracheal tube through those vocal cords. Um, but if that is going to be suspected to be a difficult intubation, then you may not want to do that. You can bring other equipment such as a glide scope in the room that'll have a video camera on it. So you don't have to uh, get as perfectly defined as an angle to view those vocal cords. Or maybe you want to do an awake intubation. If you really think it's going to be difficult, there, there are circumstances where we can give the patient some moderate sedation and keep them breathing on their own and go ahead and go down with a fiber optic scope and intubate from there. So there are things that that we can do if the patient is going to be suspected to be difficult, but you definitely need to do this pre-op assessment before you are going to anesthetize the patient enough where you need to now control their airway. What's a team of 20,000 strong capable of? When they're working together, anything. WellSpan Health, recognized as a top employer in Pennsylvania, invites you to join our award-winning team. The WellSpan Health Anesthesia Group gives CRNAs the opportunity to practice in a setting that fosters professional clinical growth while still maintaining a sense of close community and family. Does the idea of working with exceptional, innovative teams inspire you? WellSpan has immediate opportunities in several locations for CRNAs and SRNAs, including hospitals and surgical centers. What's it like being a part of WellSpan's award-winning team? They strive to make every person feel welcome, respected, and valued in a safe and inclusive environment. Are you looking for excellent salaries, benefits, and relocation assistance? How about a signing bonus of up to $80,000? Well-balanced work and home life? You got it. At WellSpan, there's a community you'll love to call home. Nestled in small-town charm, WellSpan's eight hospitals and 220 care locations are near exciting cities like Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York City. WellSpan is reimagining healthcare. Inspiring health takes inspiring people, like you. 
Learn more at joinwellspan.org slash CRNA. And like Cole said, we do a lot of these assessments all at one time. And I think ECRNAs would be lying if you didn't say that sometimes you get burned, you know, when you're doing these all at the same time and you don't take the appropriate amount of time or maybe not the appropriate amount of time, but you just don't pay specific enough attention uh, to one of these compared to the other. Many times we'll just go in, do a quick mountain potty. Uh, nothing seems, you know, really that crazy with their neck or their teeth. And so you think, yes, it's fine. And how many times do you get into a difficult intubation or maybe just something where you need to switch to a different blade? And then you are looking at the patient and pack you and you're like, yeah, wow. Like I didn't notice their, uh, you know, they had an overbite or their lower jaw was recessed. And uh, if I would have done a full upper lip bite test and would have seen that they, you know, didn't have uh, good mobility with that mandible to get up and over that uh, upper lip, you know, maybe that would have clued me in that I needed to try a different blade from the start. And uh, so I think it's just important that while we do combine a lot of these tests, and I'll, I'll say that I do the same thing, um, you know, it's just important that you do work through all the different angles and make sure that you're doing a very quality pre-op assessment. And two, you'll get tricked. Like if they have, uh, you know, a guy comes in with a beard and you don't really uh, visualize his lower chin that well. And you think, Oh, this looks fine. And then all of a sudden you realize there's, you know, a bunch of beard there and you're not, you know, they have a, they have an overbite or, you know, recessed jaw, whatever it might be. But, uh, it's just important that we do take our time and make sure you do all these assessments adequately. So this is the real reason we want to do this, this talk. We've been, um, you know, asked, like Cole mentioned earlier in the talk to just walk through a simple intubation technique and, you know, what does that look like? So here's where we're actually going to get into the nuts and bolts of, uh, you know, how do you intubate a patient? So let's first start with induction. Induction is where you are going to start positioning the patient, start getting this patient, uh, you know, some medication on board, start getting them pre-oxygenated. This is where you're inducing anesthesia and getting the patient suitable for the intubation procedure. And so the first thing that we'll want to do is position the patient appropriately. Again, this is another thing that can be easily overlooked or rushed through. And this is really going to set yourself up for success or failure, depending on how you position the patient. You're going to want the patient all the way at the head of the bed so that you are standing directly over their head. And again, this might not be perfectly possible if you're, you know, emergently intubating somebody or you have to go to the ICU or, uh, you know, you're in an offsite somewhere where you're not able to stand right above them. Um, but ideally, this is how you should be every single time the patient at the very head of the bed, you're standing right over them and have access to, you know, all your equipment. That's another thing I want to mention. You want to have your anesthesia machine within arm's reach. So I uh, mentioned this to think about when you're offsite, if you're in a cath lab or you are uh, in IR or you're in the MRI suite or somewhere where you're just not in a typical OR setting, this is important to take a second, make sure that all of your equipment is right where you can reach it. Because once you start, you know, inducing this patient, this is the last thing you want to do is be able to, you know, leave the airway to go grab more equipment or to uh, reach the, um, you know, the bag or whatever you need to do. So make sure you're set up where you are standing over the patient, you have access to all of your equipment and everything is set up exactly how you'd like it to be. You want to keep their head above their chest, and this is going to help align 
three axes that we often talk about. These three axes are going to be the oral axis, the laryngeal axis, and the pharyngeal axis. What's important here is when you think about looking into someone's mouth and then think about where your vocal cords are, and you're trying to get a view looking through someone's mouth to the vocal cords. And you can see that if somebody's just, you know, in a normal position, that's not a direct view. And it's not going to be a perfectly direct view, even with you aligning this patient. That's why we still need to use, you know, the intubation blade, whether you're using a Mac Miller or whatever you're going to use. But it's going to be much easier to get that visualization if we have those three axes aligned. To do that, that is going to, again, have their head just slightly above their chest. What we're looking for here is that the tragus of their ear is going to be lined up with their suprasternal notch. So the other thing that you can do here is if you have somebody who is uh, obese or has a really, really uh, large back, say they're you know, a big bodybuilder or something, you're going to want to help them by ramping them or um, you know, just helping getting their, their head elevated so that their head's not tipped all the way back and is below the part, um, you know, below their chest. So if they're, um, you know, body habitus demands that you're going to want to ramp them, but just take a minute, make sure that they're um, situated appropriately where you've aligned those axes. And then the last thing you'll do is just have them tilt their chin to the ceiling slightly. And again, this is going to uh, complete your aligning of those axes to get everything in line. This is going to be helpful again with positioning to make sure the patient is high enough. I see this all the time with students when you're going to intubate. The patient is, you know, about waist level, and that's really comfortable when you're masking a patient to have your arms down and you're masking them. But it's really, really difficult to intubate because now, if you think about it, you're looking down at the uh, patient's mouth. Your direct line of sight is going straight you know, their open mouth is going straight to the posterior part of their pharynx, oral pharynx. It's not a good view. What you really want to do is have them bed up higher. So it's basically the top of your stomach, even um, basically right there um, at the base of your sternum. Um, we always say like xiphoid process is, is really best to have the top of their head. And this is then your line of sight is going to be aimed more towards their vocal cords instead of looking straight down. Um, you're looking more towards, again, their lungs, just your line of sight compared to looking straight down at the table below you. So uh, the last thing I would mention when positioning is just get the table up. It feels uncomfortable and it feels like when you're getting the blade in the mouth that you're like, you know, working pretty high, but you'll start to realize that the more you do this, the less you're lifting heads off the table, the more you're really having to, um, you know, struggle when you're trying to intubate. It's just important that you get the positioning just right. So once you have them positioned appropriately, the next thing is to pre-oxygenate. And this is a very important step. Oftentimes we rush this and I'll be the first to admit that probably don't every time that I do an anesthetic will give us as much time as what we're supposed to. And that's really three to five minutes that you're supposed to have this patient breathing 100% FiO2 oxygen through the anesthesia circuit. And usually what happens, you get the patient in the room, you move them over, you're hooking them up to all the monitors, the cords, they're probably anxious half the time. You're trying to give them Versed if you haven't already in pre-op while they're coming back. They're, the nurses and the circulators are kind of scrambling around trying to help you. They're holding things. Um, the alarms are kind of beeping because you're trying to hook them all up to the vital signs. It's just a lot up front 
and you put the mask on them and you want them to take these deep breaths. And sometimes they're too anxious to, to keep that mask all the way sealed because they might get claustrophobic. Um, other times you're just ready to start getting them asleep um, so that they, they can relax a little bit more or maybe everything is totally calm and totally fine. And you put that mask on their face, they start breathing that oxygen. And it's just a three minutes to five minutes is a very long time to sit there and wait for that. And so if you can, I highly recommend that you get that mask on their face is one of the very first things. And and there's conflicting viewpoints on using a mask strap. And so some ORs will have these mask straps that you can put behind the patient's head uh, when they go ahead and move over to the operating table. And they'll have some straps that'll come around and secure the mask to their face. Um, and again, some people that are claustrophobic uh, do not like this at all. So I would not recommend it for them. Um, but there are also some times where if you have a patient that's pretty calm and relaxed, you can do that right away. Um, I sometimes will will put this strap and secure that mask onto their face. And then that mask is going to be staying right there, breathing or, or supplying oxygen at 100% FiO2 while I go ahead and hook up the rest of the monitors and do my thing. And that just, again, just starts that three to five minute process right off the bat. So a lot of people will say the reason that we do three to five minutes of pre-oxygenation is simply to fill the lungs up with as much oxygen as possible. And while this is true, it's, it's only partially true. The other side of things is that we're trying to clear the lungs of nitrogen that is currently in the lungs from doing uh, room air. Uh, breathing. And so really there's twofold there. You want to get rid of that nitrogen and then fill up as much oxygen as possible. Once you think that they're pre-oxygenated enough, you're ready to move on and induce with anesthesia. But sometimes this, this isn't always the case. You don't have three to five minutes. If it's an emergency or if it's somebody that you're wanting to, to rush back and uh, quickly do, they're just not able to pre-oxygenate very long for whatever the reason may be, and you can have them take four really full deep breaths over 30 seconds. So then after that 30 second mark, you can go ahead and induce anesthesia. So when I say inducing anesthesia, what that means is we can do it one of two ways. One can be through an IV form, meaning if the patient already has an IV, we can give medicine through that IV. The most common medicine that we give is propofol. And this is going to put the patient to sleep. The other option is if they don't have an IV, we can do what's called an inhalational induction, which is where we turn on an anesthesia volatile gas or a volatile agent through the breathing circuit from the ventilator. And then it'll put them to sleep after several breaths of breathing in that uh, anesthetic volatile gas. Regardless of the way that you do this, um, we get the patient to sleep. And once we get them to sleep, we take over their airway. And typically after you get the patient to sleep with an IV induction, you go ahead and give a neuromuscular relaxant. And this is usually one of two meds. It's either succinylcholine or it's rocuronium. And succinylcholine is, is often given for what we call a rapid sequence intubation. So if you ever heard or hear of that phrase, rapid sequence intubation, that simply means right after the patient falls to sleep and we induced anesthesia on them, we want to go ahead and try to put that tube between their vocal cords. In a regular induction, though, in a regular intubation, our goal is to uh, ventilate and give breaths for that patient while we let our neuromuscular blocking agent completely set up. Um, that's because the rocuronium takes about 90 seconds, whereas the succinylcholine is within 30 seconds, already kicked in, and you can go ahead and intubate right away. 
So why would you want to do a rapid sequence intubation compared to a regular intubation? Well, a rapid sequence intubation, or it's also known as an RSI, is used when we are more concerned about the patient having emesis come up from their stomach after we put the patient to sleep. Because the problem is, once you put a patient to sleep, they no longer have their airway reflexes. And so if they were to have emesis come up or they were to vomit, and you don't, and you do not have that in the tracheal tube already secured between their vocal cords. What can happen is then they can aspirate. Their airway reflexes are not intact, and they can uh, get a lot of that down to their lungs, develop pneumonia, infection, etc. And so once we think that the patient has an increased risk of having aspiration or having emesis come up, maybe they have a full stomach, so they've had uh, not their MPO status followed for the the appropriate amount of time before the procedure, or maybe they have a backed up uh, GI tract and we're going in to do a procedure related to that. Uh, Whatever the case may be, if you think that they're at risk for that, that's why we do an RSI. So with the regular induction though, as I said, you get the patient to sleep. We're going to continue to oxygenate and ventilate the patient via our anesthesia circuit. So you're going to go ahead and uh, mask the patient with one hand, and then with the other hand, you're going to push on the bag and actually give breaths to this patient. Uh, the biggest thing that I notice when people are first starting out with masking is you have to make sure you're getting good in tidal CO2. And never do more than two breaths without changing something up if you're not getting the results that you want. So when you're starting to mask the patient, look at that in title on your monitor and make sure you're getting in title come up. If you're not, you need to do something different. Uh, we're not going to go in totally to the different ways to mask uh, during this episode, but just know that if you are masking appropriately and you're still not getting in title, the next steps would be to either put a, uh, an oral or a nasal airway in the patient's mouth or nose. Um, you can do two hands on the mask to get a good seal and have somebody else squeeze the bag for you, um, et cetera. But you really want to make sure you're able to ventilate that patient. So we're not just simply giving oxygen, but you want in title coming back, meaning you're ventilating the patient. Once we've given enough time for that neuromuscular blocking agent to kick in and start working, now we're going to be able to intubate the patient. And we should mention that the goal for this talk is to talk more about the actual intubation and techniques for that. And so obviously if you're a CRNA listening to this, you might be thinking, well, there's a million different ways that I'd be inducing this patient. So you know, that's really not the, the point of this discussion. Um, we just want to make sure that we're making it clear that our, our intent here is going to be more on uh, the actual form of intubating. Uh, like Cole mentioned, typically what you'll see is rock or sucks when you're getting the patient relaxed for intubation, but there's a ton of different ways that you can do that. You could use rock even for your RSIs if you were uh, going to give a high dose uh, with Sigamidex too. That's something that's becoming more common. So th- there's there's tons of different ways. We're not telling you if you're listening to this as a, a new sRNA, this is not going to be the one and only way that you do all of these uh, you know inductions or even our technique for sure. Um, we just want to make sure that you understand that there's a lot of different ways to do this. And even like I said, when we talk about our technique, there's different ways to do that, but this is going to be a good starting spot for you if you're just learning how to intubate. So uh, don't be surprised if you're in the clinical setting and, you know, this is not like the only way that you're going to, uh, you know, know how to induce a patient. So just wanted to make that clear. When we're actually intubating the patient, uh, we need to understand prior to intubating just the basic anatomy. We know that the trachea is going to sit anterior to the esophagus and is going to be uh, located behind the epiglottis. So now we're trying to think, okay, if I'm trying to look at the 
vocal cords. How am I going to how am I going to get a good view looking past the tongue, uh, getting that epiglottis out of the way and actually looking at the trachea. So each provider is going to have a preference on what equipment they're you know preferentially using, whether it's going to be a Mac or a Miller. Those are going to be the two most common blades that we'll talk about. Uh, so I just want to take a minute here to touch base on that as well. A Mac blade is going to be curved. Miller blade is going to be straight. Um, and that's the you know biggest difference between the two. The Mac blade is going to, uh, you know, technically have less risk for trauma to the teeth, or uh, it's also going to have more room for the ET tube to move past the tongue and actually get down to the trachea just because the blade is curved and follows that natural anatomy a little bit better. It has a larger flange, so it improves your ability to actually sweep the tongue out of the way. Um, and then the other thing that people will tell you also is that it has less risk for causing trauma to the soft tissue. And the reason for that, and we'll get into this, is just because of the technique, you're not actually lifting up the epiglottis with the uh, Mac blade. The Miller blade also has some advantages. Oftentimes we'll use this for pediatric patients simply because it is a little bit easier with smaller mouth openings, has a smaller profile. And just frankly, you're going to get a better view with a Miller blade than you will with a Mac. Um, and if you use both blades, you'll see the difference. The The downside here is that there is a little bit more risk for injury to the teeth if you're not using it correctly. And then also just maybe a little bit more trauma since you're actually physically lifting up the epiglottis instead of using the molecular uh, space to just move the epiglottis out of the way. So the actual technique for the Mac blade, I also wanted to touch on that real quickly, is that you're going to be placing the tip of the Mac blade into the vollecula. So this is the space that is between the epiglottis and the anterior part. So this is the space in this is the space in the anterior part of the epiglottis, and this is the vollecula. So basically what you're going to do when you're getting down to that space is you're going to see the epiglottis that is hanging down in your view. The blade is going to go just above that, and there's a little space there. That's what's called a vollecula. And then actually applying pressure there is going to help that epiglottis flip up out of the way, and that's what's going to give you your view. With the Miller, in contrast, you're going to actually lift up the epiglottis with the blade, and that's going to give you the direct view to the vocal cords. Have you thought about doing locum tenens work? If you want to earn more money, try new practice settings, expand your clinical skills, and control your own schedule, give locums a try. Locumtenens.com has been placing sRNAs, cRNAs, and anesthesiologists in thousands of assignments across the country since 1995. LocumTenens.com is not only the largest job board in the industry, but also the largest supplier of anesthesia locums. And they're backed by an agency of over 600 associates to guide you through every step of your locums practice. Take an assignment here and there, or give up the stress of your full-time job entirely. You can make more money in half the time, escape hospital bureaucracy, minimize administrative work, and get back to practicing pure medicine. LocumTenens.com will assist you with licensing, credentialing, and privileging. Whether you choose a local assignment or head cross-country, LocumTenens.com will pay for your travel and even cover your malpractice insurance. You've got nothing to lose and only experience to gain. Go to LocumTenens.com to search for an opportunity today. 
So let's talk about the actual steps when you're going to actually put the blade into the mouth and how you're going to get your view. So regardless of which blade you're using, the first step is always going to be to get the blade successfully into the mouth. And this is easier said than done, surprisingly. Uh, if a patient's top and bottom teeth, let's say they're too close together, then you don't want to damage the teeth when you're going to put the blade into the mouth. And and regardless, even if their teeth are completely separated, we, we never want to be messing around with a patient's um, dental work while we're doing our anesthetic because that's one of the main complications and things that you see arise from anesthesia is damage to uh, the patient's teeth. So we got to be very careful at this point. And if their teeth are too close together, if you extend their head back a little bit and you just put a little bit of pressure to extend their neck back, um, that, that actually helps open their mouth a little bit better. Uh, you can also use your right hand to open their mouth. So you, it's called scissoring where you, you put your fingers into the right side of their mouth between their teeth and you kind of push their upper and lower jaw apart from each other. And you push their upper and lower teeth apart from each other and you keep your, your left hand on the, the actual blade. Um, if you have not intubated yet, we always intubate and with our left hand on the handle and the blade, and then your right hand is going to be used to intubate the patient. So what I like to do is I angle my blade and my handle towards the patient's right hip when I'm placing it into their mouth. And this just gives me uh, the, the narrow angle to kind of put this blade in between the teeth. And what happens then after I get just past the teeth, I get the tip of my blade into the mouth. I start to bring it back to the middle instead of off to the right. And as I do so, I push the tongue over to the left side of the mouth. And this is called sweeping the tongue. So it's kind of one smooth motion. I get past the teeth when I'm facing the right hip with the angle of my handle. And then as I start to go around the tongue, I sweep my, my tongue over to the left as I bring my handle back to the middle. So now I'm, I'm facing just right straight down the patient's body. And I continue to bring that blade around the tongue. And what you're doing is after you've gone around the tongue and past the tongue, after it's swept away to the left, you want to see that epiglottis hanging down. That's the first thing that I always look for. It's not the vocal cords. You really want to see that epiglottis. And that is a landmark that's going to help you figure out where you're at. So depending now upon what blade you're using, whether you're using a Macintosh blade that's curved or whether you're using a Miller blade that's straight, this will depend on the next step. So if you have a Mac blade, um, and regardless here, I should back up a second, regardless of which blade you have, the goal is to somehow now move the epiglottis out of the way to expose the vocal cords that are going to be hiding behind the epiglottis. And it's going to be on the highest part, the superior part of your view when you move the epiglottis out of the way. So what happens then is depending on which blade you have, so let's talk about a Mac blade first. So this is the curved blade. And as Tanner mentioned, you want to get to the vollecula. So this is best done by moving the tip of the blade up into the spot where that epiglottis meets the base of the mouth. So which in your view right now, it'll be the top part of your view. Um, but again, because they're lying supine, this is the uh, base of their mouth. And so what you want to do is when that tip goes just into that point where the epiglottis and then the mouth actually meet there, that's the vollecula. And when you just put a little bit of pressure on that spot, it reflexively will cause the epiglottis to flip up and out of the way. And when it flips up, 
theoretically, it should expose what we call the holy grail, and that's going to be the vocal cords. And you want to see that kind of V-shaped cartilage forming around that opening, which is the vocal cords. Now, let's say you have um, gotten to this point, you've gone ahead, gotten to the vollecula, the epiglottis flips up out of the way, and you're not able to see the vocal cords. Uh, don't be too concerned yet. This just simply means that the vocal cords are probably more anterior, so they're higher up on your view. So the first thing I always do is I take my handle and I will lift up and away. And so again, this is once you've gotten into the vollecula. You do not need to be lifting up and away until you've gotten into the vollecula. You're engaged in that right spot. The epiglottis is starting to flip up and you apply a little bit of pressure by lifting up and away. So what I do is I look at the opposite wall in the operating room. And if you follow that wall up to the line where it meets the ceiling, that is about the angle that I'm trying to lift my handle to. So I'm going away from me and up towards that part where the wall and the ceiling meet. And by doing so, that applies complete pressure to all of that soft tissue and moves it up. Now, what people try to do is they actually try to crank backwards on the handle. And what that would do is it lifts the tip of the, the actual blade up into the molecular more. So you would think that by doing so, it's going to make the epiglottis flip up higher. But actually what it does, it applies more pressure to just that one point. And you now have increased the likelihood of your handle at the back part of your blade actually coming down and getting on some of the patient's teeth. And so we don't want to do that. Um, it's actually better to lift up and away because it applies complete pressure to all of the soft tissue and moves everything up and out of the way for you. Now, if you do this and you still don't see the vocal cords, this is where I bring my right hand around and I put it on the patient's neck and I put a little bit of cricoid pressure and I press down on the neck and I see then if that lowers the vocal cords into my view. And usually this will at this point, if you're in the right spot with your blade, you go ahead and you lift up and away, you go ahead and press down with your right hand. Usually this will bring them into view, if not somewhat into view. And again, you're not cranking backwards on the blade and you're not trying to uh, manually lift that epiglottis out of the way. You're just letting the tip be in the molecula and you're using your right hand to push down and to line up that uh, view for you. And if that's the case, then I have a circulator, whoever else is in the room helping me, I have them hold that pressure exactly where I have it. I reach back and I do not take my eyes off of that open spot. I do not take my eyes off the vocal cords um, because without fail, if you look even to grab your ET tube and then look back, something will move slightly and you'll have to re restart trying to get that view back. So I never lose that view once I have it. I hold out my right hand, somebody places the ET tube in my hand, or I have to reach and get it exactly where I know I set it at. And you go ahead and you put the tube through the right side of the mouth. And again, this is something where uh, it's pretty important to maintain your view of the vocal cords as long as you can. And what I mean by that is the ET tube can get in the way of you seeing the vocal cords. And so what I do is instead of just putting that ET tube right down the center of the mouth and following the blade, I will actually have a little bit of a bend to the tip of my intratracheal tube, almost like a hockey stick. And what I do then is I come from the right side of the mouth and I bend it around the right side of the mouth so that it's staying to the right side of my view until it gets down far, far enough into the mouth where I am ready to go ahead and move it over and put it into the vocal cords. And that way I keep that view of the vocal cords as long as possible.
So once we get to this point, obviously you hopefully are able to put the tip of the tube through the vocal cords. And if you have a stylet, a metal stylet in that tube to kind of hold that curvature, you don't want to continue to push it down into the trachea with that metal stylet in the ET tube. So what I do is once the tip of the ET tube gets just past the, the vocal cords, I will have somebody pull the rest of that stylet back out of my tube, and then I will go ahead and advance the tube further. But sometimes that tube can get stuck on uh, the, the vocal cords there, and they won't progress further down into the trachea. And don't panic at this point. Just go ahead and try to spin the ET tube uh, 180, even 360 degrees in one direction or the other. And this will help uh, just kind of create enough of a, of a uh, cyclical spinning that will allow it to kind of pop past that point that it's getting um, kind of caught at. And if that doesn't work, the other thing that I do is I actually will have somebody put a little bit of cricoid pressure back on their neck and press down. And that sometimes will align it a little bit better to help get it to pass through. In the unlikely event that the trachea has some stenosis, you might have too big of a tube. So you may need to switch it out for a smaller tube in order to get it to pass through. And then everything is the exact same here, but if you use the Miller blade, once you got around and you saw that epiglottis, once you got past the tongue, instead of getting up into the vollecula, you manually want to lift the epiglottis with the blade. So you go actually put the tip of that blade past the epiglottis and manually lift up and away again. You still go into the opposite part there, um, lifting up and away, and you're wanting to expose the vocal cords when you do so. But everything else is pretty much the same. It's just a little bit different of a of a technique to actually expose the vocal cords by manipulating the epiglottis. And a couple of ways you can use that Miller blade. So if you want to just move past the epiglottis completely and then slowly pull back, what you'll see is you're not going to see a good view when you just go past the epiglottis. You're not going to just see cords. You, you really won't see much of anything. As you pull back, though, what you'll see is that the cords will actually drop down into view. You can also, um, honestly, this sounds weird, but take your right hand, move it around, and you can um, just kind of jiggle their neck a little bit or tap on the front part of their neck, and you'll start to see uh, the cords just drop down into view. And uh, it really does work that way as you start to pull back the blade a little bit, and then you just give a light tap on the front of the larynx, you'll start to see the you know, cords just pop down into view. The other way you can do that is just to slowly uh, advance the tip of the blade down uh, until you see the epiglottis and then you'll gently just pick up the epiglottis with the tip of the blade. This is a little bit more of like a fishing technique as you're just slowly moving forward uh, and then you'll you'll get the epiglottis and then lift up and away like Cole mentioned. Don't be surprised when you lift up and away or if somebody is helping you and they pull the cheek what to you know allow the ET tube to get into the mouth easier. Don't be surprised if you lose the control of the epiglottis with the Miller blade. It's not a big deal. Just stop lifting up and away, come back, restart as far as just getting the epiglottis or if you're just going to go past it and drop back, whatever you choose to do. Um, but it's not that uncommon that you might have that uh, just slip off one or tw once or twice, especially as you're getting used to that blade. To recap, make sure your positioning is very good. You've already done your assessment. The patient is positioned appropriately where you have them in stepping position or you have your axis aligned. If you have a larger patient, you might need to ramp them. You have the table high enough where you get a good direct line of sight to the vocal cords. Now the patient, you've gone through induction, they're asleep, they're relaxed, you've pre-oxygenated them, you have good ventilation, you have good end tidal. 
Now you're going to place the blade in the mouth. You're going to open the mouth by either just tilting the head back a little bit, or you're going to scissor the mouth open, place the blade in using your left hand. It's going to be pointed towards that right hip, sweep the tongue back over midline. As you advance down, you're going to see the epiglottis for the Miller blade. You're going to go uh, and pick that up and just look at the vocal cords for the Mac blade. You're going to go just below, or I guess just above the uh, epiglottis technically to uh, lift that up out of the way using that pressure. Both blades, you're going to be lifting at a 45 degree angle up and away from you, not cranking back, watching the teeth. This is going to give you a good view of the cords and then you're going to place the tube. Like Cole mentioned, if you get hung up on anything, don't freak out. Try manipulating the tube, turning it a little bit. It's a little bit of an angle at the end of your ET tube. So sometimes just turning it a little bit will allow you to, to slide past the cords there. The other thing we wanted to mention here quickly is the uh, different technique using a glide scope. So glide scope is going to be uh, another tool you can use specifically if you're into a difficult intubation, if your assessment has shown you that this is going to be a difficult intubation or you run into an unanticipated difficult intubation and you need a different tool, you can use the glide scope. This is going to help you obtain a view of the larynx just by uh, indirect visualization. There's going to be a little video camera, like Cole mentioned, at the very tip of the blade. So you're not going to need to directly visualize the cords. You can just look at the screen that will be showing you where the tip of your blade is located. This is going to give you an improved view of the cords because, like I said, the camera is on the very distal part of the blade. So if you have somebody who has a really anterior um you know, vocal cords, or if you have an issue with a narrow mouth opening, uh, you do, again, don't have to get a, just a direct view. You can just see your view there at the end of the blade. So to use this, you're not going to need to sweep the tongue because again, the whole reason we're sweeping the tongue is so that we can get a good view since we're not relying on a direct view. You don't need to sweep the tongue, just go midline and you're going to place the blade in the mouth. Once you're there, you're going to treat it like a Mac blade. So you're going to see the epiglottis there. You're going to want to go above that into the vollecula and still lift a little bit. This allows you to do a little bit more of a rocking motion. I feel like I'm, my skin's crawling saying that because everything in me says never, never, never are you to rock. But sometimes you do just need a little bit of back pressure. And like Cole said, when you're lifting, uh, when you're rocking back a little bit, it's going to just change the view at the very end of your blade so that doesn't work when you're doing direct uh, laryngoscopy with this it's going to help a little bit but again you're still going to be very very observant of the teeth and this is not the main way that you're going to get your view i'm just telling you there's a little bit of leeway there if you need a little you know adjustment don't be afraid to do that once you get the epiglottis to move up out of the way, you're going to use a specific stylet that will be going into your ET tube. And the reason we use this is because it follows the exact curve of the blade. If you think about it, you have, um, you know, you're not getting a, a straight view. So your tube can't just go straight down into the cords. It needs to follow that same curve of the blade, the glidescope blade, so that when you are, you know, falling past the tongue, you're going past the epiglottis that it's going to go straight there into the uh, vocal cords, going straight through the vocal cords, excuse me. 
the one thing I'll mention here with that is that sometimes you're using this specifically because they have a very interior airway. So sometimes if you think that uh, you get down there, the one problem with a glide scope is you don't have a lot of dexterity at the end of your ET tube because you are just following the natural um, anatomy of the patient's airway. So if they you get to the very end there and your tube, for whatever reason, is not matching up with the vocal cords, you can kind of be stuck here because uh, like a direct laryngoscopy, you can just move the tube around pretty uh, easily. Here, you've got a lot of tissue with the tongue, soft palate, all of that, that's going to be keeping the tube mostly in place. So, so what you can do here is actually bring your glide scope blade back just a touch. It sounds counteractive. It seems like you want to just go farther into the molecular and just lift up out of the way and get a better view. But if your vocal cords are too high, actually pulling your blade back just a hair is going to allow some of the pressure to come off and allow those vocal cords to drop down a little bit. The other thing that you can do, if you think about what this tube looks like, so picture basically a J uh, with this tube. It's not, it doesn't finish with a, you know, a flip up at the end, but it's, basically that same arch of a, of a J. If you are going straight midline and you're trying to get more interior, you're not going to be able to manipulate that because again, you're not, you know, opening them out super wide and have direct uh, visualization of the cords. So what you can do is actually turn the tube a little bit to the side and then just twist it a little bit. And this is going to cause the twisting motion is going to cause you the end of the tube to go up and down instead of just twisting and making it go left to right. So that can help you get a little bit more interior. If you have difficulty, you're not going to be able to advance it past that, but many times just twisting it like that's going to be able to get the tip of your ET tube through the cords. Now you can bring it back midline, pull your stylet and get it the rest of the way through the cords. Uh, as you typically would. The main thing that I think we want you to take away from this discussion, again, if you're an experienced CRNA or CRNA, or if you're, you know, uh, well under your clinical period, this is most of this is going to be review for you. Uh, but hopefully if this is, you know, your first time getting into clinicals or you're trying to understand what the actual process of intubating is looking like, hopefully this is helpful for you. I would tell you that like Cole mentioned, with pre-oxygenation, you have time if you have done a good uh, pre-oxygenation of this patient. What's going to work against you is trying to move really, really quickly or you know, getting nervous if you can't get it right away and just trying to make something that's not working work. Cole mentioned that you try you know, two breaths before you change something. The difficult airway algorithm, one of the main problems that we have is that we try the same thing over and over. We don't move on to the next thing. Uh, and so I would just tell you to take your time, make sure that you really are going through every step. Oftentimes it's as simple as not getting, if you're using a Mac blade, not getting that situated far enough into the vellecula. And that's why you're not getting a good view. You're not getting the epiglottis to flip out of the way. You think, okay, I've, you know, I've swept the tongue. I'm... I see the epiglottis, I'm in the vellecula. Why am I not getting a good view? And simply it's just taking an extra second to go a little bit further into there and getting better leverage on the on the uh, epiglottis. And so I would tell you, just take things nice and slow. Be very purposeful with what you're doing when you're trying to gain an airway, but take things uh, slowly and make steps purposefully, walk through all the steps. This will become very, very second nature to you. Like we mentioned at the beginning, this becomes such a small part of your day, 
but this needs to initially be something that you work through every step methodically and every part from the pre-op assessment to the positioning, to how you open the mouth, to how you actually are sweeping the tongue. All of these things play into the fact of if you're going to be successful in intubating or not. So um, it sounds laborious to talk through all these different aspects of it, but take the time, be methodical, and we really think that you'll be successful as you learn to intubate. Mm-hmm.